Welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and I will be chatting to researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed education is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the lower blue mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging, who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I chat with Christopher Such. He is the author of The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading and an experienced teacher, school leader and educational consultant. His book has been hugely popular, and I think it's due to having the right blend of research and practical advice. Chris is someone that I was really keen to talk to because having listened to him as a regular guest on Kieran Mackle's Thinking Deeply About Primary Education podcast, I knew that he had so much more knowledge to provide that goes beyond the book, and I promise you that he doesn't disappoint. In our conversation, Chris touches on teacher workload, professional development, and he goes through the thought behind his book, and how his thinking has developed since its release. We then take a deep dive into teaching reading fluency and look at what it is, common misconceptions that teachers have, and what it looks like across different year levels. After that, we somehow manage to fit in an overview of comprehension. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Christopher Such. Gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Christopher Such. Uh, he's the author of The Art and Science of teaching primary reading and just a really experienced educator and, and it's a book that I highly recommend and I'm, I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you today Chris but are you able to just tell us a bit about your journey um, into the position that you're in today? Yeah sure so I entered education in 2006 having come out of university with absolutely no idea what to do with myself and So I kind of fell into teaching first as a teaching assistant, so a classroom assistant in a secondary school, then at a primary school. And then I thought, well, I might as well become a teacher. I might as well get a PGCE, qualify to be a teacher. And then I've always got something to fall back on. And then slowly but surely over the last kind of 16, 17 years, it became the only thing I wanted to do. About six, five or six years ago, I kind of moved into school leadership in particular kind of being a curriculum lead um, before that I'd obviously been reading lead writing lead uh, I'd led on mathematics and other bits and pieces but about five years ago I started as I say we're working as senior leader but at about that time as well I started working with a, an initial teach training provider to support them with evidence-informed reading along with some other bits and pieces and in order to prepare for that I started reading a great deal more about reading research And I found it fascinating and I've kind of been a bit obsessed with it ever since. And yeah, that led to me uh, writing a book. It led to me working recently for um, an organization called Ambition Institute, designing professional development for um, literacy leaders across the country, or should I say co-designing that professional Mm -hmm. development because it's uh, very much a team job. And as part of that now, for the last year or two, I've been a consultant that works with schools, multi-academy trusts, national and international organisations to support with evidence-informed reading and what that might look like in the classroom. Awesome. And, you know, just kind of backtracking a little bit, because 
you know, you, you've now got such a, a focus on on reading, but what was your own experience like at school? And, you know, how did you actually find learning to read, if you can remember? Oh, yeah, I was quite lucky in some ways. I was, I, I, I learned to read or was pretty capable as a reader before I arrived at school, to the extent, in fact, that when we first got to school, we were all given very simple books, books that had single picture and then a word underneath. So, you know, red ball, red bus, red bike. And I, because I could already read a little bit, I was completely bamboozled by these books. I didn't even recognize them as books. And so the mm. teacher thought when I was kind of silent with them that I couldn't read. So I was the one, my mum tells the story that I was the one pupil in my class who wasn't given a book to take home because I wasn't ready for it. And my mum had to go in and say, no, hang on a minute, he, he can already read. And this is why. So, and, and that mainly comes down to the fact that I've got two older sisters. And so my mum did a lot of reading with us. And it's it, I don't think it's that common that people can learn to read that that way. In fact, it's pretty rare, I think, that people can get the basics of learning to read from someone just reading aloud and pointing at the words. But I was, I think in this case, one of those exceptions, unless uh, my mum um, is much more capable at teaching the basics of phonics um, than she lets on, which which might be the case knowing her. Yeah, yeah. And so what about your actual teaching experience then? You know, like were, were you kind of using a lot of these evidence-informed strategies without really knowing the research behind it? Or, you know, did you only really come across it after, you know, you went into that new role? It's a good question. I kind of divide my career into two halves. In the first half of my career, in pretty much anything that I taught, all I was trying to do was as good a possible version of whatever it was that the senior leaders in the school were asking me to do. So if they asked me to teach reading in X way or Y or Z, so that might be carousel guided groups where I'm working with one group of kids at a time or where I'm doing lots of reading aloud or whatever it might be, I kind of gave up my autonomy to some extent, mainly because I just wanted, I think, the approval of the senior leaders in the school. And then as I got about six or seven years into my career, slowly but surely I reached the point where I, I think I realized that in a way, everyone in the profession, and I mean this in the nicest way possible, everyone was as clueless as I was, which is everyone's just kind of stumbling their way through, trying to work out what's best. And I really don't mean that as a criticism. It's just that teaching is so complex Mm. that everyone is just trying to make their way. And so there was part of me that started to think, well, actually, maybe I can teach in my own way. And it was then that I started to, to consider well, if I'm now taking responsibility for it more, what am I basing it upon? And that's when I started to to do some reading. I think some of the things that I did in class or came to aligned, as it turned out, with the research. I mean, generally thinking about cognitive science, I was quite keen on things, what we might call retrieval practice and desirable difficulties in terms of uh, using little and often practice as well and and the ways in which I use that little and often practice um, outside of reading Um, and I came to that quite naturally and was as I'm sure lots of teachers do and was quite pleased to find that that aligned with certain bodies of evidence when it came to reading I think there were bits and pieces that I did it's a short answer so I what I, I did support pupils to be more fluent through repeated reading and that's something that I came to quite naturally but there were plenty of things that 
I did or didn't realize were priorities until I actually dug into the research. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting hearing you speak about that because I think you're, you're, you're right when it comes to, to teachers and they just want to do their best. I think like, you know, when you look at the majority of the teachers, that's what they're trying to do day to day. And they, they're overloaded, they're time poor. And so they're just trying to make sure that they're able to kind of prepare as well as they can for today's lessons, for the class that they've got in front of them. And so that's why, you know, change and, and learning on the, on the job is such a difficult thing to actually implement, you know, and I'm sure we'll touch on this throughout today's conversation. But yeah, that's kind of what I was reflecting on as you were speaking about that, you know, like even for yourself, you know, you've had to to go and do a lot of your own research. It didn't necessarily happen through your job. And and I think that's the, the same story for a lot of teachers today. Yeah, it's, it's hugely problematic, in fact, that the, the central reason why I was able to learn a lot of this stuff that I've found useful and I hope that I've been able to share with other people who have now found it useful is because of personal circumstances. I if you I hope you'll not mind the very brief detour, but because I develop I have a you know a, a physical disability, it's a progressive physical disability, which means that I, I knew I had a fairly brief window like around the, where I would be able to do lots of things that I love, like play play golf, go for walks, all that kind of stuff that I can't really yeah. do anymore. I okay. knew I had a fairly brief window to do that. And so I I, for, I forced myself to work four days a week for a while, just because I wanted a day a week that I could dedicate to things that I wasn't going to be able to do forever. And then when, you know, the, the, the physical disability progressed to yeah. the point where I couldn't do this stuff anymore, and I suddenly didn't have these hobbies there was the part of me that thought, well, I should go full time in teaching again. But it happened to coincide with the point when I was learning about this research. And I said, well, you know what? I'm, I'm in the fortunate position where I live somewhere pretty cheap. I can afford to work four days a week. And on that fifth day, I will do the things that teachers really should have the opportunity to do. I will undertake professional development. I'll read about stuff. I will network on Twitter. I'll just do things that I think will be positive for my career that I'm not actually going to be paid for for the time being. Um, that it's, it's a really unfortunate thing that those circumstances were the only way for me to take that time to really engage with professional development. And I think it speaks to the fairly ridiculous workload that most teachers have, certainly in the English education system, where, you know, I think most primary teachers in my experience are working kind of somewhere in the ballpark of 50 hours a week and at that point asking teachers to read something on a Saturday or go to a conference in their own time or whatever it might be is you know it's, it's a pretty difficult ask yeah look thanks for sharing that story you know with, with me and the listeners because I think it will really resonate because you know if, if you look at this is just my kind of perspective, but if you look at the explosion of of um, social media and and people in in terms of engaging with the research, a lot of that happened around the time of, of when COVID came about, and so we had a lot more time, um, you know, where we were teaching from home, and that also brought about more opportunities to either engage with educators um, at diff in different parts of the world, or um, you know, do your own bit of research, and and I think like. That, that just gave us uh, a real opportunity to do that. Whereas 
like you said, otherwise we just haven't got the time and, and yeah, yeah the, or the the resources or access to, to doing that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's hopefully we're able to learn something from that and, you know, and even learning from what you're saying there that you're able to, when you have the time, you're able to really make an impact on not just yourself but other people as well and, and really support, you know, our colleagues in that. And, and, you know, I've had the same sort of experience where I've been able to move into like a, a four day a week role and, and, and spend a lot more time in, in doing this sort of stuff and engaging with the research. And it, yeah, it just makes such a difference and gives you a, a certain level of confidence when you are working with teachers and working with, with students as well. Yeah, and something I'd like to add to that as well, if I might briefly, away from yeah. the kind of research side of things, when I went from five days to four days a week, I found that I enjoyed every element of my job considerably more. I was less, because yeah. I was less tired, less stressed. I was yeah. in effect working in school, a still a kind of a 40, 45-ish hour week, which I think is a fairly sensible amount of time for a person to work full-time regardless. But it meant that there were parts of my job, fairly large parts of my job, that I really before then had thought that I disliked. And actually, it wasn't that I disliked them. It was that I disliked them when I was tired. I disliked them when I was overworked, when I was somewhat overwhelmed by, you know, the just, yeah, the level of workload. So I, th I think there are huge gains to be had across the sector from finding ways to de-implement certain things mm. that we do in schools to allow teachers to focus on their core role we often talk about this idea of like a work-life balance which inherently suggests that they're in opposition and my experience at least is that they don't need to be and in fact having a healthy life beyond work really feeds into the quality of work that you can do the way you feel about it the likelihood of you staying in the profession for the long term as well yeah. so yeah, sorry, I could talk about workload all day because I think it's arguably the central issue in the teaching profession, certainly the primary teaching profession in England. Yeah, you know, 100% we're experiencing, you know, massive um, teacher shortage here in Australia. And, and I think a lot of what we're talking about now is impacting on that. And yeah, teachers are really struggling, I think, as a profession. And a lot like, you know, a lot of the research will, will tell us that when when teachers are feeling valued and they're feeling connected to their job, both what they're doing and also where they're working at, it does make a huge um, difference to, yeah, I guess their well-being and in general. And, and so the more ways that we can do that and, and I, you know, I feel like professional learning or professional development has such a big impact on your, your own morale you know when you feel more confident in what you're doing and, and you're you know able to put into to practice best practice yeah it just makes your your job so much better and you know and like that's going to have a flow-on effect because your kids are going to be learning you're going to have less behavior issues so yeah I think there's you've brought up a lot of really good points there all right, The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading has been a hugely influential book for many teachers. You know, and I, and I was saying to you before, I think like the blend of research and practical strategies that you're able to deliver in a really succinct manner is exactly what, you know, these time-poor, overloaded teachers need right now. And, and I think you were able to, yeah, put it all together in a really accessible manner. However, it was released in, in 2021, so I assume you, you would have written most of that in, you know, around 2020. 
Is there anything that you have changed your mind about or, you know, what sorts of things would you add since then? I think there are a few things I've changed my mind about. Notably, I think the way that the book is organized, I, I divide it into decoding and language comprehension before I get into other aspects. But the core of the book is exploring the inter integrated bodies of knowledge behind those two things. And firstly, I think I would have perhaps, like, if I were to keep that structure, I would have called the decoding part word recognition to emphasize um, certain ideas, because often those two things are conflated and they're not exactly the same thing. And I think that I think there's value in using decoding to mean the use of sound spelling correspondences in order to recognize words and then using word recognition to include things like the development of wider orthographic expertise and how that contributes to like automatic word, uh, word recognition. I think mainly it's stuff that I left out that bothers me because at the time, when I first wrote it, I thought I wanted to keep it under 100 pages. I wanted to self-publish. I wanted it to be under 100 pages. I wanted it to be something that teachers could read really briefly. And I found that I failed at that particular quest. And over time, I thought, well, you know what? I need to keep it below 200 pages. And in order to achieve that, there were lots of compromises. There were places where I thought, you know, I have to cut that out. I have to cut that out. And... Yeah. In particular, I wish I'd written more about fluency. I wish I'd written more about the relationship between fluency and uh, comprehension, the kind of the reciprocal relationship between the two. I wish that I had written more about morphology. The, the research into you know, morphology, these chunks of meaning or the study of chunks of meaning within words is it's not as vast as the research into alphabetic stuff the relationship between letters and sounds but it's fascinating it certainly has a role in vocabulary which is where I did write about it in the book but I think there's interesting things to say about it with regards to word recognition Kathy Russell or Professor Kathy Russell writes really persuasively on this subject if anyone's interested I would certainly consider checking out just her, her work more generally. She has something, I think, uh, Russell Lab, I think she calls it on her website. But in particular, her lecture on that I think was for a mid-career prize that she won. If you type Kathy Russell lecture, mid-career prize, you'll find um, her discussing the nature of the writing system and morphology comes up in that. So I wish I'd written more about that. I guess the other thing I wish I'd done more of with hindsight was something that I intentionally set out not to do which was that I, I, I wish that I had perhaps been a bit braver in inserting more of my own perspectives on things. I tended to focus on, here's what I think the, re the research mm. suggests. These are sensible principles from the research. Here are practical strategies related to that. And then in the last kind of 10% of the book, I allowed myself a little, a little bit of room to say, well, this is one way how this might work in practice. But I don't think I really nailed my... Um, colors to the mast as it were to say you know what if i were left to run a school this is what i'd do i assumed there was no appetite for that but the feedback that i've received from people suggests that maybe there there was but i think if i'd really gone for that it might have ended up being more like a 350 or 400 page book and then suddenly it's not that accessible thing that i was after but in short uh, i might have structured it differently i certainly would have added more about 
fluency. I'd say finally, I think I wish I had talked more about that first aspect, the art, in particular, when we're talking about questioning mm. pupils, how to discuss texts with pupils. I think one of the reasons why I didn't go there with that is because there is so little research that really can inform us there. And I don't think there ever really can be. In order to say, this is a great way to build pupils' confidence about reading. This is a great way to open up conversation. This is a way to help people to depressurize what's going on in, cl in classroom discussions. How do you research that stuff? How do you quantify it? So because there isn't that body of research necessarily there, I, I didn't focus on it quite so much. And, and I wish that I'd maybe been a bit braver there in talking about my own experiences, what I think makes for really positive classroom discussions, things like depressurizing strategies, things like trying to ask some questions that involve the word might, because they provide more of an invitation for discussion. So yeah, I think, I guess on the positive side, it means there are still things to say, there are still things potentially to write. Yeah, look, I think it's great to be reflective on things, but I think you're being a bit harsh on yourself as well. You know, in, in terms of your target market and what you were trying to achieve, I think you were able to produce a product which really done that well. And like you said, it, there's so much to talk about when it comes to, to teaching reading that, yeah, you could quite easily turn a, you know, 200-pager into a 500-pager. And and I think it's like, yeah, I, I reckon if you did include something, it would have been great to have a bit more of your perspective on things. But yeah, hopefully we can touch on some of that stuff today. And and I know that you've also you know spoken a lot to, to Kieran Mackle on the Thinking Deeply About uh, Primary Education podcast as well. And so I think that's you know another kind of great aspect is because you you've got now got this kind of reference point that you can go back to and then work off. And in your know today we're really going to dig into fluency and and I think. Yeah, if we can look at some of the art of that as well, I think that would be quite useful for teachers. But yeah, you touched on some of the feedback that you've received from teachers about the book. Are there any other things that kind of surprised you, you know, when teachers have contacted you about it? Yeah, so it's it's I would say the thing that surprised me most has been that thing that I mentioned there, which is the idea that I assumed that people wouldn't really be interested as it were in my opinion on the subject they wanted to know the research or to get an overview of the research to begin to understand it and I found from the feedback the opposite I mean the main thing that surprised me is just how positive everyone's been about the book if I'm largely <laughs> honest I mean people have just been very very kind about it and said lots of nice things which I do really appreciate when people reach out and say by the way I read this and this really helped with mm -hmm. that it, it means the world to me so the main thing that surprised me is how positive everyone's been I would say beyond that, occasionally I get a bit of feedback that says, loved it, would like more of your kind of your take on things, your view on things. But I think there is an extent to which I get that feedback because once they've read the book, they yeah. sort of assume that I might know what I'm talking about in this area, whereas I sort of felt at the time that I needed to earn that. Yeah, I got some really fascinating feedback from people who particularly relating to phonics, who were able to recognise that some bits and pieces that were in there made sense, but that there were alternatives available. 
Yeah, and and I think what you're saying there is just how important it is to have an understanding about the why you're doing things as a teacher. You know, a lot of the times, like the first thing that you want is, like, all right, just tell me what to do. You know, I want to know how do I do it, what do I do. But then you, you can kind of um, fall into this trap where you've, you're, you're just using these different strategies or you, these different tools without really knowing why you're doing it. And yeah, and it, and it can kind of end up really going pear-shaped because you haven't got the right effect that you're actually meant to be getting from it. I'll give you an example I had recently with some teachers, again, on phonics, where they wanted to do a bit of retrieval practice. And, you know, so I think they were maybe looking at the long E sound and basically when they had it, they had all the different ways of, you know, showing the graphene phoneme correspondence, but it was just the E sound over and over again. And so the, the kids are just going E, E, E. And so they're not having to think at all. They're bored. And then, you know, the teacher was wondering later, oh, you know, why was this not working? And I had to explain, well, yeah. because, you know, we, we actually need the kids to be thinking when they're doing this stuff. You know, the whole point of retrieval practice is, is that they need to be doing the heavy lifting. Just then I know that, you know, you're trying to go over things that you've been doing in class, but it's probably not as effective as it could have been. Yeah. So it's interesting how you, you, you mentioned that as well. Um, so, yeah, looking at, at fluency now. So, you know, in, in the art and science of teaching primary reading, you wrote, reading fluency is a prerequisite for the comprehension that is the purpose of all reading. So what what is fluency in reading and why is it so important to comprehension? So at heart, fluency simply means flow. It means we're talking about the flow of reading. Fluency comes from the Latin word fluere, meaning kind of flow or flux. So when we're talking about reading fluency, I don't think there really is a, a better definition than it is that fluency is the flow of reading or the flow of words as we read. However, in the classroom, or equally as if someone is a reading researcher, it's really important to be able to observe reading fluency, because we want to be able to quantify it, we want to be able to measure it, we want to be able to see whether we can improve it. And that's very difficult to measure if you can't observe it. And so we end up looking at oral reading fluency often as a, as a way of kind of getting to this difficult construct. So when we're thinking about someone reading aloud, there are certain things that we can observe. So we can observe accuracy, automaticity and prosody. So accuracy are the words right, automaticity, do they flow at a, a requisite pace to allow for comprehension? And prosody, when reading aloud, does it sound akin to a natural spoken voice? And we can end up thinking of that as a really as part of the definition of fluency. And that's a fairly sensible thing to do. It's also worth bearing in mind, though, that they are particularly prosody. They are ways of accessing or observing oral reading fluency. And there is still kind of the reading fluency that we have if we're just reading silently. And so we need to bear in mind that these things, accuracy, automaticity, and prosody, they're proxies uh, that try to get at this underlying flow of reading. I think another thing to, like, to really get at, thinking about the quote there, is that if reading is very slow, if it's stop-start, in short, if we're devoting too much of our cognitive resources to the process of kind of recognizing word by word, then there's very little left for us to actually dedicate to the process of comprehension. If the, in short, if the words aren't flowing, 
then there isn't like the working memory or brain power, however you want to, you know, put it, that remains for us to, you know, think about what the words actually mean together in concert. And so reading fluency allows us to comprehend. It's also worth noting, as I mentioned earlier, there's this reciprocal relationship. So as well as the, the words flowing, allowing us to understand what we're reading or supporting that, the reverse is true. The more that we understand what we read, the easier it is for the words to flow because of these small kind of pseudo predictive steps that we can make about what's coming next in uh, the text, amongst other things. So, yeah, fluency allows for comprehension. Yeah. And, and what are some of the misconceptions you've come across when it comes to fluency? I would say the the central misconception that I come across time and again is it relates to word recognition and decoding and kind of what comes, I was about to say what comes before, though there are things you can do with fluency, even as pupils are at the very earliest stages of um, learning to decode. The misconception I see most often is the idea that we support pupils with phonics teaching. In other words, we teach them the relationships between graphemes and phonemes and how to use them through the development of phonemic skills like blending. In other words, we teach them really common correspondences and how to use them. And if we do enough of that, then pupils are fluent. You know, if we and if they're not fluent, then we need to give them more phonics. And this plays out not just in conversations you have with teachers. It plays out in conversations that you see or sorry, in documents that are often produced by governments, which seem to suggest if a pupil is not fluent, give them more phonics intervention. The reality is that there is. The central misconception that we have about fluency comes down to a misconception about what phonics is and what it seeks to achieve. People think or seem to think that phonics is a way of teaching pupils to recognize words fluently, and it isn't. Phonics, or at least systematic phonics, a curriculum of explicit phonics, the job of that is to give pupils enough of understanding of the most common aspects of those relationships between letters and sounds and knowledge of how to use them so that they can begin to become a fluent reader through text experience. So there is this idea that, well, I'll, I'll teach them some, some phonics and then they'll be fluent. And if and you see this play out with regards to decodable books, for example. Yeah. So some I've seen phonics providers give advice where they say don't let a pupil take home a decodable book to practice until they can read it fluently until they automatically recognize 90 percent of the words within it at least which is a very silly way to look at things because decodable books are meant to be providing this conscious decoding practice mm. it's there's this almost a rush to fluency what we really need is to ensure that pupils are accurately decoding, which is what phonics begins to achieve. But crucially, this path to fluency then requires a great deal of accurate text experience, often with feedback. And the challenge often is, well, how do I provide that in a whole class setting? But crucially, the main misconception I'd say is that we teach phonics and that's what allows, that's what leads to fluent reading. And there's some truth in there. It's certainly a crucial first set of steps, but there's still a long way to go in terms of accurate, meaningful text experience in order to develop 
fluency, as well as other things that we can do to catalyze this process. Yeah, I think it's a really important misconception that you've, you've addressed there because, you know, and I think it, it also gets to the heart of where people are saying, you know, the science of reading is just about phonics as well, you know, and, and that's all that we're advocating for when, you know, essentially that's just one part of the reading rope and, and we're looking at all of it needs to be taught and, and students need to be building up their knowledge in, in all of those different aspects so that they can experience fluency, which can then lead to comprehension. If, so, if I may, sorry, oh, sorry yeah, is that okay if I add a little onto that? Of course. So just, so just to add on to that a little, in effect, yeah. it, it goes back to what you said there about understanding the why, understanding what it is that phonics in this case seeks to achieve and the role, the important role it plays in those early stages of helping pupils to eventually become fluent readers. And so many people seem to think that, well, part of phonics is to teach pupils all of or the vast majority of the relationships between letters and sounds that they'll see in words so that they can yep. recognize any word. And that's, again, it's, it's not quite the case. A systematic program of phonics will get pupils to the point where they recognize enough of those relationships so they can start working the rest out for themselves. A phonics program that tried to teach every relationship that exists between graphemes and phonemes in our language, be it the oh phoneme represented by ACH in the word yacht, or the A phoneme represented by the letter E with an accent in a word like cafe. Yeah. If we're going, a phonics program that sought to teach all that stuff would take forever. There's so much value in explicit instruction, but we have to remember that there is also a great deal of statistical learning that needs to take place following that. In, in other words, phonics is kind of starting the car, but there's still a journey to be taken through meaningful text experience. Yeah, yeah, I like that analogy. And I think, yeah, something that that we as teachers just need to kind of get our heads around, especially, you know, we've got a lot of teachers who are kind of making that shift from, you know, balanced literacy or whole language and where they're used to kind of going straight into, here's a book, you know, and they're reading a book, even though, as we know, they're not necessarily reading it, but that's that's what it feels like. And so it feels like you're, you're going backwards when you, you're kind of taking this systematic, you know, structured approach to teaching phonics. <clears throat> so, yeah, just looking at, what does effective fluency instruction look like in in that kind of early stage one stage one classroom? So, uh, yeah, kindergarten or, or foundation. I'm not sure. Yeah, we got we got about five different names for the first year of school here in Australia. But yeah, for those the first couple of years at school, what does effective fluency instruction look like? So I think there are a number of aspects to touch on because, as I mentioned, fluency is kind of the bridge between yeah. word recognition, language comprehension, and it's completely and dependent upon pupil development of pupils' expertise with the English writing system, their capability in decoding words, that the teaching of phonics is a key part of that. It is that first step towards fluency. It's not the whole thing, as we talked about before, but helping pupils to begin to recognise words is obviously a huge part of that. But there are other things. So, for example, because fluency involves understanding print there are other little things that we can sensitize pupils to we, we, we assume for example that pupils are um, ready and able and recognize that words on a page broken are broken up into 
into chunks and that that matches our speech in some way. But the reality is that our speech doesn't feel like that. Pupil, young people, children are, are um, naturally capable of breaking chunks of sound or finding chunks of sound within strings of speech. And yet this idea, this concept of word, the idea that the words on a page are these specific units is something that doesn't come naturally to them in a lot of cases. So one thing that we can do is occasionally when we're reading aloud a text, do something called finger point reading, where we might read aloud, point at the words as we do. So pupils begin to recognize certain basic print print concepts, one of them being concept of word, but also other things like the idea that we read from left to right and we read down the page. These are things that we can accentuate in our instruction. I would say also that because fluency in the long term will depend on pupils' vocabulary, their knowledge of the world, their understanding of the kind of language that's used in texts, there's huge value in the stories and the other kinds of texts that we read aloud to pupils and that we discuss with pupils. As I mentioned before, one of the key things for fluency development is meaningful text experience where pupils will begin to spot more and more of these patterns between graphemes and phonemes that aren't necessarily taught in a phonics program. They'll start to learn the rest of the patterns of our writing system through text experience. But they do that in part by recognizing words there. They come across a word like cafe. They maybe decode it as cafe or cafe. But as soon as they go, oh, hang on, I know the word, I know cafe, and then they've learned a new grapheme phoneme correspondence. They've learned that, oh, that E seems to be representing an A sound. Fantastic. And then they see that word again and it's reinforced. But yeah. that only works if they know the word cafe. So mm. the underlying processes that allow for fluency development are re rely on this vast interconnected body of knowledge about the English language, both in its written form and its spoken form. So anything that we're doing to develop that is supporting fluency development over the longer term, be that read, reading to pupils, discussing books with pupils, having conversations with pupils, supporting their spoken language development. But of course, at the beginning of all of this is making sure that they are competent and confident in the early stages of recognizing words, which obviously includes phonics. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you're, you're a kindergarten teacher or a U1 teacher. What sorts of things and, you know, what does this look like in the classroom? That's a question that they're going to be asking. Yeah. So beyond, as I say, phonics, reading aloud to pupils, prioritizing spoken language development. Another thing that I think is really valuable is the use of decodable books in the classroom or decodable text at least in the classroom. One of the things you can begin to do is to integrate that either into your phonics lessons or part of your day after or before or beyond phonics lessons to some extent. And you can begin to introduce some of the whole class reading practices that you might uh, find useful in sort of year two, or you will likely find useful in year two and beyond. So you can do things like, uh, like uh, layered reading that I've heard it described as, I can't remember who described it as layered reading, but I, I like the phrase, which is where with a decodable text, a teacher might read a page, modeling, decoding the words that they know pupils are more likely to struggle with. And then they do an echo read. So there's a teacher read and then an echo read where a teacher maybe reads a sentence and then the pupils read a sentence following along with their finger as they read. 
kind of reinforcing this concept of word that I mentioned. And then there might be um, a partner read. So there's like a third go where the, the pupils are then having a quick read of that page. And in a decodable book, a page might just be one or two or three sentences. They're then reading that with their partner back and forth and then having a quick chat about well, what that means, what, what, what's any unfamiliar words, what's the this page talking about, how does this advance the story, say, before going on to another page. In effect, introducing the basics of repeated reading with pupils in a really scaffolded way, getting pupils ready for the sort of beneficial whole class fluency practice that they're likely to engage with, or I'd I prefer them to engage with in year two, year three and beyond. But of course, as I say, it's still worth bearing in mind that phonics is still at the heart of developing this stuff. Reading aloud to pupils is still at the heart of this stuff. Supporting pupils' spoken language development is still key to this as well. Yep. So just to recap, so layered reading is when you've got the teacher reading aloud, modelling you know, what a fluent reader sounds like. Then you've got the echo read. So that's line by line, swapping between teacher and students. Then you go into the partner read where students are paired up and then they chat about what it means. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. And, it can, it, and there's no set way to do this, that someone can say, point to the research and say, at this age with these kids, do it in this order. This is exactly, this is how you must do it in order for it to work. The underlying principle that I'm kind of leaning into and trying to facilitate on some level, is the idea that it's useful for pupils to do some accurate decoding. It's useful for them to kind of practice that in effect, and that it's useful for them to repeatedly read in some circumstances, aiming for a slightly higher degree of fluency with each read. It's, it's useful for pupils to begin to feel what fluency does feel like, like coming out of their own mouth. How, In other words, beginning to coordinate slightly pacier, more flu fluent, more, as it were, more prosodic reading by reading a text or reading a sentence or a number of sentences a few times. Yeah. Okay. So now as we move up into the, you know, the upper primary years and, and so now that they've started to to master the code, what what does that look like now in terms of fluency? Really good question. I would say a couple of things. There are a couple of key priorities when it comes to developing reading fluency. The first is relates to what I was talking about a moment ago, which is opportunities to reach fluency with, with a text, which usually means some forms of repeated reading. Now, this might be scaffolded, as I mentioned before, with choral reading or echo reading. But the key thing is repeated reading, the idea of pupils reading a text maybe three or four times, each time aiming for a greater degree of fluency. Now, I think it's sensible to build that into a lesson structure that also explores the meaning of the text and make sure that it's a text that's worth reading in the first place. I think it's it's useful, from my experience at least, for that to involve modelling of fluent reading and the discussion of what fluent reading might be for a particular text in terms of, well, this phrase is worth emphasising or we might want to pause here, that kind of stuff. So it's worth modelling as well as that being part of the session. But I also think that in terms of building motivation, making sure that this isn't dull in some way, yeah. is to have a sense of purpose to this session. So I think that there being a sense of performance, a sense of rehearsal, 
in other words. So repeated reading, I think, is best thought of as some form of rehearsal. And so sometimes it makes sense to work with sections of speeches or poetry, but it works just as well with, you know, parts of narrative or information texts. But the key thing is having some form of performance at the end of it. Now, that doesn't mean getting kids on stage and, you know, fancy dress or anything like that. It just means the idea that towards the end of the lesson, it might be that there's, we've practiced this, we're really fluent at it, let's see how good we are at this now, let's read it together as a class, or maybe volunteers would like to have a go at reading it individually or in pairs, or maybe when we've reached that stage of development, I might even pick pupils at random to read, which might sound very scary to a lot of teachers, the idea of picking pupils to read aloud at random, but from my experience, if you teach repeated oral reading well, one of the key things about it is pupils get the chance to read aloud and be successful at it a lot. And that means that when you come to them at random and say, oh, can you read this bit aloud? Well, they've, they've heard it modeled a couple of times. They've practiced it three or four times. They've heard their partner read it three or four times. They're totally ready for it. And so it doesn't feel like they've just been dropped in the deep end of the swimming pool. It, it feels like they're, you know, they've been gently introduced and they're ready to have a go at it. So that's that's one thing, you know, repeated reading, both as a, a set reading lesson is one way to do things. Or you can do repeated reading across a week. It might be the case that you you notice with your class that actually this 30 minute session, it works OK. But what I'd rather do is use this chunk of text and we'll read it for the first five minutes of the lesson every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, aiming for a higher degree of fluency. The key thing is that there is this repeated reading and whether or not it is in a particular session or it's spread across the week. Personally, I don't think that's likely to make a, a huge difference. Now, the second thing that really matters for fluency development is sheer breadth of text experience. And. This is where we kind of get into the weeds a little bit about how we provide that text experience. Because when pupils are right at the start of their journey to reading fluency, if you just give them a text and say, off you go, read that, you don't know whether they're reading accurately. You might be forcing them to, to struggle, which might um, develop a negative association between reading and their sense of self-efficacy, etc. So it can be really difficult to manage. So it might be that at first, that breadth of text experience means a teacher reading aloud under a visualizer and asking pupils if they want to, to kind of follow along. So they start to spot some of these patterns between English orthography and the words that they represent, you know, be it cafe or whatever it might be, they start to recognize some of these extra kind of relationships between letters and sounds that are new to them. As pupils become more expert, though, you can then introduce um, lots and lots of this breadth of reading experience through their own reading. You can say in a reading lesson, well, today we're going to be looking at this chapter and we're going to break it into bits. What I'd like you to do is um, take a moment. I'd like you to read the first page in this chapter in silence because I know that you're at a level where you can do that. Read this first page in silence. If you finish, I'd like you to read it again. See if you can spot X, Y, and Z, or see if you can find this, or see if you can summarize what you think this page is about, whatever it might be. But you get them to read, and then you have a bit of discussion fairly briefly, and then you read some more. One of the key things that we 
so often forget, I think, in the teaching of reading is just how important this breadth of experience is. It goes back to that thing I mentioned earlier, this statistical learning. We have to provide pupils with a vast quantity of meaningful data when it comes to reading that they can learn from, that they can spot patterns from. So lots and lots of reading and making sure that that includes wherever possible and as soon as possible, eyes on text, processing the words is at the heart of fluency development. Yeah, so am I right in saying what you're kind of touching on there is just, you know, like, like a knowledge-rich curriculum and, and, and really focusing on building up that background knowledge and uh, vocabulary and, di and different types of texts. Yeah, I had I spoke to Reed, Reed Smith on an earlier episode and, and he's someone that's done a lot of you know, research on on comprehension and, and the importance of background knowledge. And yeah, we spoke a lot about this this as well, but it's yeah really, really good to hear you emphasize that as well, because again, you're showing that it's when it comes to fluency, it's not just about that that decoding. It's, it's also much more about having the actual vocabulary and background knowledge so that you're able to, to when you come across different words, you're able to pick them up a lot faster. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love Smith's, Reed Smith's paper on background knowledge that I think he wrote with Pamela Snow and others. I think it's arguably, I think I might have described it as my favourite paper on reading at some point or other. Beautifully written. I love the connection it makes to other aspects of cognitive science, in particular cognitive load theory. And it's this idea that it has about the expertise reversal effect. I won't go into that right now, but I would say to people, check out the paper. It's it's wonderful. What I would say on that is it absolutely does relate to the development of background knowledge, vocabulary, knowledge of text structure, knowledge of, the, of sentence structures that often are more complicated or certainly differ in reading compared to writing. But it is also that other side of things. It's also word recognition. It's also spotting the patterns within text. It's you know, it's reading a word like, and I'll pick one off the top of my head, it's reading a word like hyperbole and realising, you know, perhaps as an older reader even, you recognise, oh, I know that word hyperbole. Oh, is that how it's spelled? Because I would have thought that's hyperbole and learning a little bit more about how our writing system works piece by piece by piece. So, yeah, it is about the development of background knowledge, vocabulary, in, in short, our knowledge of the English language and the world that it represents. But it is also about understanding more and more about English orthography, about how, in short, how words are spelled, building up this orthographic expertise that is required for fluency. Yeah. Is there a place for like choosing text for repeated reading that are kind of just for that purpose? So they're not necessarily linked to other aspects of the curriculum, but it's literally, you know, so a teacher might have a, a block of, of time that they're going to focus on fluency development and then they're just going to pick a random piece and they're going to get the kids to do their, their paired reading on, on that. Is there a place for that or do we want to be more purposeful with what they're reading? I think we want to be more purposeful than that, ideally. Now, it, when I say purposeful, it doesn't necessarily have to mean we are choosing this from this bit of our history curriculum because we want to also build their knowledge of, you know, the industrial revolution or whatever it might be yeah we can do that and there's no problem with that but it doesn't mean we have to do that it can be as simple as i know with the kids in my class that they are fascinated by x y and z 
I'm going to pick a text that I, or, I'm, or dare I even say, this is what I used to do with year two when I taught them. I'd actually write a text because you really only need something that's say a hundred words long. And if you know you're going to really grab their attention with a text about the Jurassic, the Jurassic period, then quickly finding something on Google, there's some basic information. I'm going to write that out. Done isn't actually a huge amount of prep for a half an hour reading lesson compared to a lot of the laborious methods of planning that people engage with. But in short, as long as the text you're using for uh, repeated oral reading is, is worth it, you've chosen it for a reason. And it might be, oh, this is something I think is interesting, or this is something that connects to our curriculum, or this is something that will fascinate the kids. Or I, I was reading this class novel to the kids day by day by day, and there was this fascinating little paragraph that I maybe think they didn't understand as well as they could have done. I'm going to use that again. Yeah. As long as you, as long as there is a purpose, I don't really mind hugely what that purpose is. But there, it can be. It connects to the curriculum. It could be something fascinating. It could be something that connects to something else you've read. That's absolutely fine. But I just wouldn't be choosing, you know, random chunks of text. Yeah. I know a lot of teachers are using chat GPT now to develop those uh, passages. And yeah, I think that's a really useful tool as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Being able to say, can you pitch it at this level? Can you pitch it? I'm, I'm working with a group of children who are eight or nine years old. Can you pitch this, this at a nine-year-old's level roughly? Or perhaps this class is quite a strong class of readers, you know, really getting to quite fluent at this point. Can you pitch this at a 10-year-old's level? And then just nudging it around. Yeah, I think it's a really um sensible way to, to deal with that just one quick plug if i may my my website my blog primarycolor.home.blog has science geography and history curricula they're all free but within yep. there for every topic is an information text that is you know so they're for each of the science topics there is information text and they are kind of aimed roughly at year two year three year four year five year six and I, i've written those specifically for that level I, if someone says to me, I've no idea what to use for my fluency practice, yep. can I supplement what I'm going to find with some information texts? I tend to direct people towards those. They're a little dry. I wouldn't use them only. I would also use poetry, for example. But uh, as something to supplement that that's freely available, it might be worth checking out. Yeah, awesome. I'll, I'll put the, uh, the link in the show notes for sure. All right. So looking at students who aren't fluent readers, you know, so whether you're using Dibbles or Dibbles, however you pronounce it, or, you know, you've used some other assessment to, to measure fluency, what sort of intervention would you recommend? Really good question. I think it really depends on um, where we go with that. And I think it's worth going back to what you mentioned there about assessment. So yeah. I think that using fluency assessments in some form where we hear a pupil read aloud we work out roughly their words correct per minute with an age appropriate text and get a general sense of their prosody. I think those assessments are at the heart of any systematic approach to assessment in with pupils of this age. So on the assumption that you've done a fluency assessment and you've got a group of pupils who are significantly below where you would expect them to be at that age compared to their peers, then it's tempting to say, okay, They've got fluency issues. Let, well, let's do a particular intervention. But I think we need to dive further into that because what we might then see or are likely to see in at least some circumstances is that some of these pupils have really foundational 
issues with word recognition. So we might find that even like the most common grapheme phoneme correspondences are unfamiliar to them. And if that's the case, and even the very basics of blending those are there, are not there, then the correct intervention would be um, to use the systematic synthetic phonics program and to redo components of that. However, it might be the case that having done this assessment that you find that actually their word recognition is only iffy when it comes to blending. Recognizing grapheme phoneme correspondences, they're fine with most of these. They've got enough of a bank of these that they could begin the journey to reading fluency through meaningful text experience, but they're blending wow, this is problematic. So you could have an intervention that targets that in particular, that really focuses on the blending aspect of word recognition. Or equally, you might find that it's only polysyllabic words that are tripping them up. And you might notice this when you're doing the reading fluency assessment, or you might need to do a bit more of a phonics assessment to, to check this stuff. But you might find that actually this kid just needs some support with breaking words flexibly into syllables and then building that up again. I mean, that's likely to be the case. Um, or often that relates to pupils who seem to have a few more issues with working memory than others. Because if you start decoding the word and then, you know, 10 grapheme phoneme correspondences later, you're meant to put it together. That's quite the strain on your working memory. So chunking that into syllables and then putting that together is a really valuable thing. I personally, I think that should be part of any phonics program. It isn't yeah. always, but I think it's a useful thing to do. Um, but equally, you might find that all of that word record, like basic decoding stuff is fine. And the, re the only sense in which they're disfluent in the case of most words is that it's just quite slow and it's quite stop start compared to their peers, at which yeah. point, they don't need more explicit phonics instruction. They don't need to be taught more blending or taught more grapheme phoneme correspondences, et cetera. What they need is meaningful text experience with feedback. So yeah. they would require ideally one-to-one -one reading, or if that's not available in, inter in an intervention because of the, you know, like that's obviously resource heavy, um, yeah. It might be that you do repeated reading with them, or it might be that um, you do a mixture of repeated reading and echo reading, whatever it is that provides them with um, text experience where they're decoding text accurately, getting feedback on that. That's kind of the core of what you need to do. If someone's struggling with fluency, even though their decoding of individual words seems to be pretty accurate. Yeah, uh, lots of great tips there, Chris. And, and I think um, the way that you've broken it down is really important for teachers to kind of get their heads around as well, because a lot of the times, you know, we do these different assessments and then, we, you know, we'll, we'll um, grade them and, and, oh, you know, this kid's well below where they should be. And we think that there should be like a simple answer to what we do next. Um, and, and a lot of the times that's kind of what intervention programs are looking for. They're just um, kind of like a... Um, a stopgap measure, like just something that they're just going to um, roll through, like this is what we do for all our, our kids that are um, experiencing this. But it's, um, as you've kind of just explained there, it's a lot more nuanced um, and it de definitely requires that intervention teacher to have a fair bit of knowledge on on what they're actually looking at and, and hearing when they're, they're hearing the, the child reading. Yeah. Uh, and one thing I'd add there, I mean, is that there are also 
So while we might be looking at aspects of decoding and fluency, it might also be the case that we find from the person within our school who's an expert in special educational needs and disabilities, that there might be something else underpinning the difficulties there. So it might be that a teacher says, well, actually, the most beneficial support for this pupil right now is uh, relates to spoken language issues. And actually, this is where we need to most target our support um, when we start to see the progress that we require from that then maybe targeting reading fluency might be um, a more sensible use of our time I mean ideally you might be able to do both but the reality of schools is that often we have to prioritize particular interventions I'd like to come back very briefly to one point you made there as well which is this yeah. idea of kind of like a simple kind of catch-all solution and I, I, I agree I think that at primary level what we really want to be doing as, as best as possible is, is recognizing the individual uh, barrier to reading that is, you know, stopping this pupil from getting where they we want them to be and targeting that as specifically as we can. Now, there are limits to that. I mean, we could go as far as to say, you know what, I've got these kids that are struggling with this particular grapheme phoneme correspondence, and then this kid, these seven grapheme phoneme correspondences, and we could try to be that personal, that individualized. But it's, you know, almost impossible to logistically organize that there is mm -hmm. an element in the end of us saying, what's a sensible kind of grain size for the interventions we're going to provide. Uh, and often, I think they break down the way I described before, I think as pupils get older and I think when pupils get to secondary school, I think it becomes logistically really difficult for schools to do that stuff. Um, if they can, brilliant. If they can target individual aspects of reading, that's exactly what they should do. But yes. I, 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 I do think there are some circumstances where schools will say, you know what, we're going to put in an intervention in place that tries to tackle a little bit of all of these things and we'll see how we get on. A bit like... Um, someone having a you know a vitamin c deficiency and so you give them multivitamins you know it's not targeting the thing as well as you might want it to it might be you know it might be actually lots of superfluous elements there but yeah. it's probably beneficial to some extent it's not as good as targeting the exact deficiency or barrier but you know it's not the end of the world if if logistically you can't organize something that that, that is that targeted don't be afraid if you have to to lean into something that is a, that tries to do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Okay. So we're we're starting to get our heads around fluency, and you know you, you mentioned in the book that it's a prerequisite to comprehension. So now that we're we're teaching fluency well, or that's how we feel. What do we need to be doing for comprehension? And and I know that this is a pretty big topic as well. Yeah, it's um it's it's a massive topic. As I said before, it comes down to our conception of what reading comprehension is or what reading comprehension teaching might be. Now, people are tempted to say, and I understand where they're coming from, they're tempted to say, well, how can we break that down? How can we make a, how can we define a, a limited, a small set of skills that we can then target? Like I want them to be able to infer, so I'm gonna teach inference. I want them to be able to answer prediction questions so i'm gonna model how to answer prediction questions and then get them to practice that build up their prediction skills i understand where they're coming from there and that's kind of like one end of the spectrum at the other end of the spectrum you get people who will say um 
I say, well, it's not really a spectrum. You get another group of people who will tend to say, well, reading comprehension is actually an outcome. We're not te- we can't teach comprehension. Comprehension is an outcome. So all we can really do is teach pupils particular dispositions towards reading comprehension. We can teach them to be critical. We can teach them to be active in their comprehension. And I understand where both groups are coming from. I, um, when it comes to the the finite group of skills people, I think generally that's just a misconception to be avoided. Um, I think when it comes to the people who say, well, comprehension is an outcome, so all we can really do is teach strategies and dispositions, there's an element of truth to that. We absolutely can support pupils to take uh, an active, analytical, appreciative, and in some cases, like subjective way of dealing with text we can we can support that and we we can support them in other words to be strategic and appreciative and analytical etc but it's worth thinking about what bodies of knowledge underpin our capabilities so be on the assumption that fluent word recognition is well on the way and we're dealing with that we're supporting the orthographic orthographic expertise required for that yeah in order to comprehend We need to know what the words mean. We need to know what they're referring to. We need to know how the words interact. In other words, we need to know about, we need to understand words, texts in the wider world. So vocabulary, um, background knowledge, or in other words, the, the world that that vocabulary is relating to. We need to understand sentence structure. So how sentences are put together. And we need to understand text structure, how texts are structured in short, I see that I, I the conception I have of teaching comprehension is that we are supporting young people to know more, understand more about the written English language and the world to which it relates. So, and I do think that stuff can be taught. And I think this comes back to a phrase you used earlier, this idea of you know, knowledge rich. Now, this is a phrase that's taken a bit of a battering in terms of criticisms of it or critiques of it. Yeah. But when it comes to reading, I think it has um, a worthwhile meaning or a worthwhile definition. Because if you think of it like a knowledge-rich approach to teaching comprehension, then you are thinking to yourself, okay, I want to build up pupils' knowledge or their understanding and, of course, their appreciation and analysis of. But you want to build up pupils' understanding of the written English language. How do you then go about that? Well, you need to explore a, a, a variety of texts that are chosen for the, um, the the quality and the variety of their content. What do I want them to learn about? What variety of texts do I want them to see? What kind of language do I want them to explore? Now, we can't get into the minutiae of that and say, well, I want them to learn this word and this word and this word because you know there are hundreds of thousands of words in English. It would be a bit of a non-starter to try and do that with the whole language, though there are yeah words we can prioritize, dare I say, when it comes to vocabulary development. But what we can do is to start to say, okay, what texts are we going to explore? What variety of texts are we going to explore? What themes within those texts are we going to explore? How am I going to make sure that pupils are exposed to and learn about a wide range of metaphors, of text structures, of uh, of genre, etc.? And I think that's a sensible way to think about the teaching of reading comprehension, the meaningful exploration of vast amounts of texts chosen for the 
quality and variety of their content. Yeah, and I think, you know, looking at the, the quality of text that you're talking about there, I, I think in the past, you know, we've kind of relied on um, the children or our students making the choice or, or families making the choice. Um, and we haven't necessarily been, or, you know, or even sometimes it might be just the teacher choosing things that they're interested in, but we haven't necessarily been as intentional around that breadth that you're talking about, you know, and, and really making sure that we're, we're looking at different genres, we're looking at different styles of writing. Um, and I think that's, yeah, such an important aspect that you're talking about there. When it comes to, it's worth noting here that obviously when it comes to pupils like independent reading, that we want to support them as well to you know read a variety of stuff we also want them to explore their own interests we want them to yep. be able to say you know what this, i like this kind of reading i'm going to read this stuff that's fantastic but when it comes to the lessons in class that we teach i think as you say there is room to be more intentional generally speaking in english schools what has happened in a lot of cases is because of this skills mindset that i talked about earlier the text choice aspect of reading curricula has often been somewhat deprioritized. So, you know, they'll just choose a random and relatively short block of text and say, well, we'll just get kids to read this and then we'll get them to answer certain kinds of questions because that's what reading development is. It's like, well, no, the most arguably the most important part of the reading development is that chunk of text that you're going to be exploring and what they're going to learn from it, what words they're going to learn, what metaphors, what kind of tech, what it tells, says about the world, etc. And so often what texts we are reading with pupils and the breadth of texts we're reading with pupils has been an afterthought rather than the very core of what makes high quality uh, reading comprehension provision. Yeah, look, uh, you, you've made so many great points in, in this chat today about, you know, firstly fluency and now comprehension. Um, looking at your current role where you're now, you know, doing a lot of professional learning to, to I'm assuming, lots of different schools and, and different um, teachers around the country and internationally, as you mentioned before, how have you ensured that has actually been effective? Now, it's, I, I, this is a really um, interesting question because the short answer, and I could imagine people just immediately switching off, the short answer is I haven't. Uh, the short answer is that it's, uh, an almost impossible thing to do. I remember as a, a teacher, I mean, I'll, I'll explain some of the things that I've done to keep myself accountable in a moment, but it's, it's worth noting, for example, I'm, I remember working in a classroom or working as a reading lead and, you know, implementing things and then desperately looking for changes in results. So I did something with this class and now their reading results are X, Y, and Z. Mm. And it's such an in, invalid way to, to, to think about this stuff because if my results are better than they were last year, is that because it's a different cohort? Is it because I'm a more experienced teacher? Is it through sheer fortune? There are all sorts of things that can um, that we can that can like, like have an impact there. That to try and draw a straight line between I did this and this was a result with limited data, with no control group, et cetera, is, uh, would be a bit of a fool's errand. Yeah. And equally, even when we look into the research in professional development, even if we look into brilliant papers like that by uh, Sam Sims, that's part of the EEF um, 
guidance or that's led to the EEF guidance on professional development, even when we look into that stuff, if you look in the papers behind that, through necessity, what they're looking at are sorts of professional development that have potentially an immediate measurable impact. Well, there are so much professional development that doesn't necessarily have an immediate measurable impact. If I think about um, the books that I happened to be handed seven or eight years ago that got me into um, the, the like research in, in education, did the impacts of those, like they completely transformed my career. And yet, if someone said to me, well, did they improve measurable outcomes in the six months or the year following me reading those books? Almost certainly not at all. So in terms of, we did this, we saw this outcome. I don't tend to put too much credence in that. Generally, people are very positive. People will get back to me and say things like, oh, we're seeing great improvements in fluency or X, Y, and Z, or very occasionally, much more rarely, I'll admit, but occasionally people say to me, actually, our, uh, our reading results this year aren't quite as good as they were last year. Um, and it, you have to take... Um, what's that Rudyard Kipling line from the poem If? If I if you can meet with triumph and disaster and meet those two imposters just the same, it's a little bit of that. You have to recognize that when a teacher says to me, We've done what you you know, we followed this stuff in your book, we've been doing it for a couple of months now, and it's been transformative. I have to say in reply, No, it hasn't been. <laughs> it can't have been. It can't have been. Or or if it, if you've seen this positive stuff, that's down to your attitude and the way that you've engaged with it and what you've done and if i played a little role in that lovely but don't don't be ready to to look for things in data that we can't possibly discern so the question then is with that skeptical mindset in place how do i keep myself accountable well primarily i like try and keep in touch with every school and every multi-academy trust etc that i'm working with I always finish any professional development I'm doing, I do by saying, you can contact me through my Twitter, through my email, whenever, with any question, I will always be ready to support. I'll always be ready to talk about bumps in the road. If you say that X, Y, and Z isn't working with this class because I'm not going to just dismiss it, I'm going to say, okay, how can we, how can we support that? In the end, what I'm trying to lean into is something that is a bit more reliable than me saying, I've done this and this school said it worked. I'm trying to say, I'm trying to lean into a kind of a, a vast body of evidence on the subject of reading that gives us some best bets and then say, this seems sensible. In other words, in terms of keeping myself accountable, I try and make it absolutely apparent what I do and then I put it out there and I wait for people who really know their stuff and people who are really experienced in, in schools to say, yeah, that seems to align with what we think makes sense. And it seems to be having positive outcomes. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm skeptical of anyone who says we've done this thing and we know that it does this because so often these are self-selecting samples, you know, even something like a phonics program. That has that has really good results compared to X, Y, and Z. Well, if your phonics program requires a certain professional development commitment or a certain financial commitment, 
you're going to get schools that are somehow inclined or in a position where they're really looking to develop something. So yeah, I'm quite I'm quite skeptical of those kinds of claims. And I think this is why we need really good research and why it's sensible to kind of lean into that rather than trying to claim some level of efficacy based on you know my own experiences yeah i've personally found it such a kind of interesting thing to to look at because you know in my current role i also provide a lot of professional learning and and you know you do reflect back on you know what you've done and then what, what are the effects of what you've done and and it's what makes it more difficult is that you don't have a lot of control over it because it, it comes down to you know the teachers actually um, getting their head around what you know whatever it is that you've presented um, having like a really clear understanding of, of what that means for them in their classroom and then having I guess it's, it's almost like the audacity to stop what they're doing and then pick up something new, it's really hard, you know, to, to change these teacher habits that we're talking about. Um, particularly, yeah, when they're they're so ingrained and um, and you know you're doing it in front of this this live audience as well. And and um, yeah, it's something that I'm constantly grappling with. You know, how can I support teachers in making these changes? Um, you know, because there's there's just so much already on their plate, and you know, when can they do it? When do they have the the capacity to actually take that on board? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would add to that is that there are certain things that I do that I just think are um, sensible that come in from outside of reading research. So, for example, if I'm supporting schools to implement a new way of teaching comprehension, or or teaching, should I say, reading across key stage two. If I think about the professional development that I was involved with a lot of the time when I was a teacher, it would often be, here is loads of stuff for you to know, and we want you to be able to do this, and we'll do it on an inset day, and off you go. Well, I found that to be not the most effective way to do things. I tried to stagger professional development so we can say, here's a tool, here's how it works, here's the theory behind it. Now take two or three weeks to have a go at it in your classroom and then feed back to me, how is it working? Um, how does it fit with your context? And then if you're comfortable with it, then we'll put a pin in that and then we'll try something else for two or three weeks. And then when we've built up this repertoire of uh, things that we can do, tools that we can use, we can then say, now we can put them together and, and this is how we're going to be looking at teaching reading in the future. So yeah, there, there, there are lots of different things that I've, I've changed in my professional development over the years. And a lot of that comes down to feedback from teachers, feedback from schools. But a lot of it is also reading and learning about how other people are undertaking professional uh, development. Yeah, yeah. It's all about those those kind of, you know, incremental steps and and shrinking that change as much as possible. Um, yeah, I, I think you're definitely onto something there. And, and having those follow-up sessions um, just allows it to, to almost... Um, not just the accountability factor, but also allowing teachers to then reconnect and, and either reconnect with you or with each other and discuss like what, what's actually happening in their classroom and how they're using it. Because I've found that part of it, that, that sort of check-in um, is really instrumental in, in um, ensuring that teachers are able to make their changes sustainable and effective. All right, so... It's, uh, it's been such a great conversation today, Chris. And, and just to wrap up, I just have one final question. Um, what other bits of, of knowledge or resources would you recommend for teachers and school leaders? 
so it might be books or um you know i guess things to do or, or just bits of knowledge that you've found really um transformative or impactful on yourself uh, there's so much um i would say if you want to learn more about phonics instruction generally i would say that a really good thing to do is to look at some phonics programs and some of them are because of the um the the attitude the wonderful attitude to education that some people have there's lots of stuff that's out there that's free so for example um debbie heppelwhite's phonics international is a phonics program that you can explore with resources you can explore like totally for free um she's an absolute sort of titan uh, within this field um someone who's you know knows like ha, no uh, has forgotten more than i will ever know about phonics, for example <laughs> but so she's um you know that's one place to start in terms of books i mean i love the work of lynn stone um she's her books like reading for life spelling for life language for life a really fascinating place to begin she delivers courses on lots of really interesting stuff um i've in terms of uh, your your context, I think like Multilit have lots of interesting resources and support for uh, reading development. I would say in particular, if you want to kind of dive a little bit further into this stuff, the, there's a wonderful and freely accessible paper called Ending the Reading Wars by uh, Castles, Russell and Nation, which is just brilliantly written and mm. endlessly useful. I think I've, I must have read it nine or ten times at this point just because it's... I feel like I learn how to communicate from it as well. Um, there's loads of stuff. I, I would be remiss of me not to mention, as you have already, the Thinking Deeply About Primary Education podcast. Like I'm on there, which is a nice thing, but also we get to speak to some real uh, wonderful experts on the subject. Um, I believe, for example, uh, Reed Smith is coming on the show. Um, we've had people on to talk about their research so yeah, I would. It would be wrong of me not to rec to recommend that. There's there's so much. I I I'm probably going to forget the last one I'd mention. Actually, if you are really into this stuff, really into this stuff, then then I would recommend investing in um, the second edition of what's called like the Science of Reading Handbook. That has yeah titans of the research field in talking about their own areas of, of specific expertise. So I've mentioned Kathy Russell talking about morphology. You have Castles and Nation talking about word recognition, et cetera, et cetera. It is a brilliant, very, very detailed book, not one necessarily for those who are just kind of getting into it. But if you really want to dive into this stuff, it is an absolutely terrific book, expensive, but worth every penny. Yeah, lots of great recommendations there. Chris and and uh, yeah, I had I've spoken to Lynn um, on a previous episode as well, and and she's fantastic. Um, and uh, I, you know, it's great that you're able to recommend uh, so many Australians today as well, because I, I think there's a lot of uh, really influential yeah Aussie educators um, that are that are really pushing for for things um, in this space. And and uh, yeah, it's gl I'm glad that you're able to recognise them as well from from over in the UK. If I may, there's also one more that I um, forgot about. If you want to know about uh, phonics as well, the um, John Walker, who is the creator of, Sound, of the Sounds Right Phonics program, has a couple of really brilliant videos, which I think are wonderful introductions to aspects of teaching phonics that are on the professional learning platform Udemy, spelled U-D-E-M-Y. They were totally free last time I checked. 
Um, and I think particularly for those, you know, very new to the subject, they're, they're really, they're really valuable. Um, oh, and of course, my book, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna, obviously going to try and try and plug that. I'm shameless in plugging it because I don't make any money from it. The uh, royalties go to um, a Give Well registered charity, the Malaria Consortium. Um, yeah, that one. Um, so, yeah, if um, if you worst case scenario, you buy it, you think, you know what? I didn't learn anything new from this. I hope that wouldn't be the case. And feedback suggests that it wouldn't be. But even if that were the case, you would have um, donated a chunk of money to a really good cause. So, yeah, um, please consider that. Well, yes, I would highly recommend the book, Chris, and, and it's been um, lovely chatting to you today. And, and I look forward to seeing what's coming up next for you. And, and I'm sure there's always lots of things in the pipeline. So, um, yeah, good luck with everything. And, um, yeah, look forward to, to staying in touch. Thanks for today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. I loved Chris's real honesty, reflective nature and attention to detail. I've got a long list of takeaways today, so I'm just going to go straight into them. At the start, Chris told us about how his teacher didn't believe he could read. This reminds us of how big a range in abilities we can have right from when our students enter school. He spoke about how due to his physical capacity, he dropped back to only working four days a week, and he was able to spend the fifth day engaging with professional development. It highlights the amount of time we potentially need to dedicate to teacher development. As someone who is currently writing a book and have many other ideas in my head, I found digging into his thought process behind writing the art and science of teaching primary reading really fascinating and I can understand the grapple he had with what to put in and leave out. Fluency is the flow of reading and we can observe accuracy, automaticity and prosody. We need it so that we have the cognitive capacity to dedicate to the process of comprehension. The misconception that phonics is a way of teaching pupils to recognise words fluently, when in fact the job of phonics is to give students enough understanding of the common grapheme-phoneme correspondences to be able to use them when engaging with the text. The importance of meaningful text experience cannot be understated because it allows students to spot more patterns between graphemes and phonemes. I love the layered reading idea and I've already started implementing it with some teachers and that involves teacher read, echo read, partner read, and then chat about what it means. Students need time to develop fluency, and this can come in the form of repeated reading. Some techniques that he mentioned were choral reading and giving it a sense of performance. Providing intervention requires us to recognise what the actual barrier is. When looking at providing professional development, Chris reflected on how difficult it is to provide PD that is actually effective. He spoke about the importance of staggering out the learning to allow time for that deliberate practice. My next guest continue the focus on reading and yet to hear from Emeritus Professor Kevin Waldle and Dr. Robin Waldle. They have achieved so much over their respective careers and had such a huge influence on Australian education. In our chat, they go over some of the highs and lows throughout their time in education, describe what effective instruction is, provide an overview of phonics and much, much more. But that's it from me for today. And as always, stay curious, keep learning and teach with purpose. Bye for now.